Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast after our week off, everybody. Hope you've had a wonderful holiday season, and uh, we're looking forward to talking to you on this New Year's Day podcast, our first of 2020. Uh, today we'll be talking first about the two college football playoff semifinal matchups, uh, going over the, the big storylines from each of those. And then uh, in our second segment, we'll be looking at the rest of the New Year's Six Bowls, both the two of them we've already seen played out and the two that will be happening later today in Pasadena and New Orleans. And then finally, we're going to go over our best, worst, uh, biggest surprises and uh, handing out our game balls as usual for all of the rest of the bowl games outside of the New Year's Six. Before we get into this, though, John, how are you doing? Did you have a nice uh, nice week off? I did. It was nice to, to kind of take a week off, to sit back and enjoy the, the start of bowl season and enjoy the holidays with family and friends. So I had a, a really good week off. How about you? You know, it's been really great. So, yeah, I, you know, I've had a little bit of time to relax outside of school, had a, had a nice uh, Christmas with uh, my wife and our new dog. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been really relaxing, uh, and enjoying a lot of bowl games. So as we do this time of year, well, let's, uh, let's look at these two big, uh, the two biggest bowl games that we've had so far, obviously the college football playoff semifinals at the peach bowl and the fiesta bowl. And I figure let's go with the one that was, uh, We'll go in chronological order the way they happened, and that's probably good because the first one was a little bit of a snoozer. It was a walkover that I was not expecting as LSU romped Oklahoma 63-28. What was your first impression of this game, John? You know, really the thing that stuck out to me the most, Zach, was that, you know, last year when Notre Dame got blown out by Clemson in the college football playoffs. The big prevailing thought by so many people was that, you know, Notre Dame shouldn't be allowed to be in the playoff again. Just basing off the fact that they got blown out in this game, a lot of people basing that off the six years previously when they got blown out in the BCS national title game to Alabama. But it it was funny to me that we haven't had that same conversation about Oklahoma, who's now lost in the playoff semifinal now, I think, four times. Yep. Three or four times, whatever it is, um, have it, have yet to win a game in the playoff. Most of their playoff games have gone largely like this one. This was the the biggest blowout that they've suffered. But I mean, they weren't all that competitive last year against Alabama. They had been beaten pretty soundly in the past. You know, they had the the classic Rose Bowl with Georgia, where that game could have gone either way. But I wasn't really surprised to see LSU route the Sooners. I think it really also spoke to the fact that there were three really, really good teams this year, three elite teams, and then everyone else was merely good to pretty good. So I think the gap between LSU, Clemson, and Ohio State and the rest of college this year was massive, and I think that's what we saw in, um, in the Peach Bowl was that that gap is just huge. Um, Joe Burrow was incredible in that game. I mean, he counted for eight touchdowns. He had seven (laughs) touchdown passes in the first half, which is just, I mean, it's video game-like. Like, Like if you you were playing that on NCAA football, you only really accomplished that if you turned all the sliders down to junior varsity, you know? So that's basically how Burrow's played the entire college football season. but LSU looked incredible. Oklahoma, obviously, I think it's a, another wake-up call for Lincoln Riley to see that he's still got a long way to go, particularly with his defense, to ever forget the Sooners to the point that they can compete seriously for a national title. Yeah, it, I mean, this was a walkover. LSU outgained Oklahoma 692 yards to 332. It, 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 it was, as you said, video game-like. I wrote in my recap of this game at Saturday Blitz that it was like playing NCAA football on rookie mode so I think we were in the same mindset with with watching that 
Um, you know, Burrow could do no wrong. He proved that he was the legitimate Heisman winner this year. But even then, this was the best passer rating that he posted all season long in this Heisman campaign. He just got better on the bigger stage. Um, Justin Jefferson was really a huge beneficiary of that, catching 14 balls for 227 yards and four touchdowns. Again, video game-like numbers, and he, you know, that was something that happened in the first half largely. He caught five balls in the second half but didn't have another touchdown. Both of these guys put up stats in the first half that somebody would be proud to have for an entire game, and they kind of let off the gas a bit, but... The other thing I thought was really interesting was that the running game looked fine even with Clyde edwards helaire out, you know, or mostly out with his hamstring injury. Uh, they obviously nursed him a bit. They gave him a few few snaps in the game. He had two carries for 14 yards, played a decoy a couple more times. But in general, he was a non-factor. But they really stepped up with Chris Curry racking up 90 yards on the ground, and the team had 160 total. And it, it was an impressive performance, not just by Burrow. He got the support from the running game that allowed him to just pick apart the Oklahoma secondary. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it was another thing, too, if you look at it, not just from how dominant LSU's offense was, but if you go and look at how good their defense played for most of the game, you know, that was one of the knocks on LSU all season was that they're as good as their offense was, their defense maybe wasn't championship level. But that's changed since they've gotten healthy, since, you know, um, Chase on and those guys have gotten back out there. And they really made life difficult for Jalen Hurts and the Oklahoma offense. Uh, the Sooners only had 14 points at halftime, and by then the game was largely over. You know, we're talking about a, a 49-14 game at halftime. So Oklahoma's offensive had any chance in this game would have had to score pretty much every time they had the ball. And it was a it was a mismatch in the trenches, I think, really on both sides of the ball. Oklahoma, or LSU really dominated up front, and that's where I think the game largely swung early on. It got, a, it got away from me, and that's what you've got to – that's the scary part about LSU is if you don't pretty much play a perfect game, it can get away from you very, very quickly. Any mistakes they're going to take advantage of, and soon enough you're going to look up at the scoreboard and you're going to be down three or four touchdowns. Yeah, and and that's the thing is, you know, coming into this game, it was billed as the, the duel between the top two vote-getters in the Heisman race, and... LSU did a number on Jalen Hurts, you know, for all the experience he had, at, you know, coming into the game with his time at Alabama, it didn't translate to to, to his work with Oklahoma against the, the Tigers. He, you know, he came into the game averaging 280 passing yards and 96 rushing yards a game, and he was held to 217 on 15 of 31 passing, couldn't even hit 50% of his passes, had an interception, and ended up, you know, he ran for two touchdowns. He did have that sort of redeeming factor in the game, but at the same time, he was held more than 50 yards below his rushing average, and... um 2.6 yards per carry below that average. They really did a great job of bottling him up. And as we've seen all year, if you bottle up Hurts, the rest of the offense does not flow. So yeah, you know, I'm 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 looking at this game and I think uh Clemson definitely has their hands full. But but let's talk about that set of Tigers now since we get a an all Tigers uh championship game. Uh, you know, that game in the Fiesta Bowl was obviously a lot closer than what we got in Atlanta, and either team could have walked away with the win in this one, and I think either one of them would have been a great test for LSU as well. Um, obviously, you know, I, I think it must be brought up, there were quote-unquote controversial uh, officiating calls um, certainly the, you know, Sean Wade getting ejected for targeting there, um, with his hit on Trevor Lawrence that knocked the quarterback out a little bit. And then, uh, Jeff Akuda's uh, strip and score that wasn't, um, that was declared an incomplete pass instead. It, 
you know, it, there were some some definite things that Ohio State fans can grumble about, but at the same time, they were in the game at the very end. So, uh, you know, football kind of turns and twists that way from time to time. Um, what did you think of how everything went down there in Glendale? I think Ohio State's definitely got um, a complaint on those calls. I think the targeting call, if you look at it, it was kind of textbook. I mean, he, Sean Wade led with the crown of his helmet coming in. I'm not a huge fan. I think it's time, and this is a separate conversation for another day, but I think there needs to be, like, um, like in basketball, when you have a flagrant one versus flagrant two, I think that needs to be instituted for targeting. I think it probably should have been a penalty, but I didn't like the fact that he was ejected from the game for that because there didn't seem to be any malicious intent behind that. And then the fumble, man, that's a bang-bang play. It, I think it's tough for Ohio State to accept because it was ruled a fumble on the field. So, you know, and that's the that's the biggest play of the game. You flip that, and we're talking about Ohio State winning that game and playing LSU for the national title. So, I mean, it's really perspective. Obviously, slow-mo makes it look worse because if you look at the slow-mo, it looks obvious that he had possession of the ball and then fumbled it, but... You know, slow-mo can lie in that vein at times. But, but really, Zach, Ohio State really doesn't have anybody to blame but themselves I still, at the end of the day. You know, we're, they broke out to a 16 nothing lead that could have easily been a 28-31-0 lead, something like that. At that point, they blew so many opportunities. They had three chances in the red zone in the first half that ultimately led to field goals, and that's just – you can't do that against a team like Clemson that has as much firepower as the Tigers have. You've got to take advantage of every opportunity you have, and they didn't do that. J.K. Dobbins was brilliant on the ground. He had 174 rushing yards, but he dropped two touchdown passes in that first half that would have, you know, I mean, the difference in the game. He had the, the first one that he couldn't hang on to in the end zone, which admittedly would have been a tough catch, so it's hard to blame him for dropping that one. But the second one, when they set up that perfect screen pass, <clears throat> excuse me, and he had a convoy in front of him, would have walked into the end zone, took his eye off the ball at the last second, and dropped it. That was huge. So I mean, you yeah. you take a couple, you put those on the board, and this is Ohio State win. And even still, the Buckeyes had a shot right there at the end of the game with Justin Fields leading the team all the way down the field and having a shot and throwing that pick in the end zone and. You know, it speaks to Clemson's defense. I think early in that game, Ryan Day was calling a brilliant game, was really out-coaching Dabo Sweeney and Brent Venables. But it also speaks to how good of an in-game adjuster I think Brent Venables is as a defensive coordinator, the fact that he was able to make adjustments on the fly. His defense tightened in the red zone. And then, you know, they only allowed seven points in the second half and allowed the one touchdown in the entire second half. So I was really impressed with the way that Clemson showed their resolve, you know, they haven't really been tested like that. You know, they had the one close game against North Carolina, but, you know, in this kind of setting, after really largely, like everyone said, being untested for most of the season, it was impressive to see Clemson's resolve. They really played that second half like a championship team, and, you know, they were able to come out from the victory. That that final drive that Trevor Lawrence engineered was incredibly impressive when they yeah, I I was I I was pleasantly surprised all around with the way that that game played out. Uh, it, it's one of those things where you know Justin Fields at once you brought up his his ability to drive them down the field, and then you look at that final interception, and it was one of those things where the receiver and the quarterback just were not on the same page, and. It's unfortunate it happens in football sometimes, but, you know, Fields kind of walks away with the with the black mark from it because, you know, it was his second interception of the game. Um, and I think, you know, he did a good job passing the ball. He had 320 yards on 30 of 46. But at the same time, what Clemson did really well was keep him from being able to use his legs at all. He only had 13 net yards on 14 carries, and obviously some of those are sacks. And um, but you know when he did did scramble with the ball, he didn't find much room, and that's really a testament to just how well Clemson's defense swarms. Um, you know, looking at the other side of the ball, I think 
Trevor Lawrence, he, you know, he took that hard hit from Wade. He came off the field a bit. He shook it off. And that's, you know, another discussion for, for hits in football and whether we should just celebrate somebody shaking it off. But again, another conversation for another time. As it went, he finished 18 of 33, not, you know, the most statistically overwhelming day. Um, had 259 yards and a couple of touchdown passes, but he didn't throw any interceptions. He was really, you know, that was the one big thing that we talked about with his sophomore slump over the course of the year was that he was he was making more mistakes with the football than he, had, he did the previous season, and he cut that out in this game, and that was really critical. Um, at the same time, who knew Trevor Lawrence could run that well? He led the team with 107 rushing yards, had a touchdown on the ground, and had more carries than anybody else, toting the rock 16 times. Uh, you know, Travis Etienne didn't get much work. He only carried 10 times. He had a rushing touchdown and 36 yards on the ground, but... He really showed up more in the passing game. It was really kind of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of game for Clemson on on offense that way. And I think, you know, it, it was a great wrinkle to throw off Ohio State for what they'd seen the team do most of the year. It was largely, too, Zach, a lot of what Dabo pulled out last year in the national title game. You saw a lot more designed runs for Trevor Lawrence against Alabama last year than we had really seen all season. So I, I really thought that was a good break. But I think that was the difference in the game. Really got Clemson's offense rolling, too, was Lawrence able to break off some runs, particularly because the focus was ETN and keeping him bottled up um, in the running game. But, you know, Lawrence had that 67-yard touchdown run right before the half that pulled Clemson from 16-7 down to 16-14. to So, yeah, I, he's definitely got wheels. He's got over 500 rushing yards for the season. I don't think that trump card will work as well against LSU because I think they'll be prepared for it. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of wrinkles they throw into the mix again for that uh, when the two Tigers duel uh, in, the, in the championship game there in New Orleans on January 13th. But we're going to save that discussion for next week uh, when we're coming a little bit closer to the championship game. For now, we're going to take a, our first break of this week's podcast, and when we return, we're going to take a look at the rest of the New Year's Six Bowls and how those have played out so far, as well as looking at how the two we still have yet to see later today might end up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break, everybody. We just finished up talking about the two championship semifinals. Now we're here to talk about the rest of the New Year's Six. With the shift of the college football playoff era, it's not four Premier Bowls anymore, but a half dozen of them. And uh, that means we also get to talk about a guaranteed spot for a group of five teams every year, which certainly makes me happy. Um, so let's go there first, because that was the first game uh, in the New Year's Six that actually took place. That was the Cotton Bowl there at AT&T Stadium not the Cotton Bowl, uh, between Penn State and Memphis. Uh, this was the, you know, the chance for the American Athletic Conference champion to, to make a showing against a powerhouse program. And they got a good test from Penn State, that's certain. At the same time, I think Memphis, you know, despite losing by two touchdowns, acquitted themselves well. And, uh, what was what was your impression of how that game turned out, John? You know, I, I really was impressed with the way Memphis played. Um, putting up 39 points on a really good Penn State defense was very impressive to me. I thought um, the Memphis offense really came play. It was a really good game. Like, it was a lot of fun for most of the way. Um, it went kind of like I expected. It was close for a while. Penn State kind of pulled away there at the end to get the two-touchdown victory. Uh, but, I, you know, Memphis's defense just couldn't get enough stops. That was the, the really story of the game. Um, and that was pretty evident most of the season. They had the high-powered offense, but they weren't any stranger to shootouts no. uh, throughout the year. 
They had plenty of the plenty of trap meet style games, particularly the game against SMU that we projected to be that trap meet. They ended up being even exceeding that. So, you know, the giving up twenty eight second quarter points was was really the difference. They broke out to the early lead, and then Penn State just was scoring at will in the second quarter and throughout most of the second half. Even so, I was impressed with Penn State. To be honest, was really my takeaway. James Franklin, I don't think, gets <clears throat> enough credit for what he's done in Happy Valley. This is his second uh, New Year's Six victory for Penn State so far during his tenure. He's always kind of much maligned by the Nittany Lion faithful because he you know, hasn't led them to the playoff yet or anything like that, but he's had one of the most consistent programs in college football in the last few years. So I was really impressed with them. This could have been the game that, you know, maybe they weren't as hyped up for some of the other New Year's Six participants because they did have to play a group of five team. But I think he had his team really well prepared. Uh, I'm really excited to see Journey Brown next season because I think, you know, he really had a really strong second half of the season. If no one had been paying attention to him, but I think this was his coming out party in the bowl game. He had 202 yards and two touchdowns on just 16 carries. Uh, to really put Penn State's offense on his shoulders. On a day where Sean Clifford, you know, only had 133 passing yards, they really needed the running game to be prolific, and it certainly was. So I was overall, I think Memphis definitely acquitted themselves well in the game, but I was overall really impressed with how Penn State played. I, I completely agree. It w- You know, it was basically a story of the ground game because – Memphis did great against Penn State's secondary. Uh, you know, Brady White really acquitted himself well. He threw for 454 yards on 32 of 51 passing. Um, but at the same time, Penn State kind of played a bend-but-don't-break defense on the back end because he didn't get the ball into the end zone, and he did throw two interceptions. Um, but, you know, I think White at least showed enough that he's got a a solid future once he goes on to the pros. At the same time, though, you know, Memphis, we've touted their running game as much as their passing game this year, and they couldn't get it done against Penn State. You mentioned the fact that Journey Brown had 202 yards, and he, he tripled the amount that the entire Memphis backfield was able to gain. They put up only 63 net rushing yards on 33 carries, averaging less than two yards per carry. And that's with, you know, Patrick Taylor had eight carries for 50 yards and a touchdown. Um, Kenneth Gainwell uh, was more significant in the passing game than the the running game. He uh, had 34 yards and a touchdown on the ground, but he also caught seven balls for 78 yards from Brady White. And, uh, you know, I think that's the thing Penn State did really well is that front seven, you know, with Micah Parsons leading there at linebacker and guys like Eter Gross Matos and uh, Shaka Tony and the rest along that line, they, they stepped up huge and they did not allow Memphis to get comfortable getting to the second level ever in the running game. And that was really what made the difference is... Penn State's offensive line could open up holes and Memphis could not. Yeah, I think turnovers were huge too. You know, Brady White had 454 yards passing in the game, but he had those two interceptions. So Penn State secondary definitely struggled to contain uh, Memphis's receivers, but those two big interceptions were, were massive in this game. Yeah, I completely agree. But, you know, it, it is what it is, and Memphis ends the year on a, a low note for the group of five. Um, in a, in a season where we've seen several other major group of five teams sort of falter and others rise from the ashes, but we'll definitely talk about that more in the next segment. Let's move on to, uh, the orange bowl that happened on Monday night, because that was sort of the game that I think everybody expected was going to be the biggest dud of the new year's six. And it turned out to be quite an entertaining matchup. Uh, Virginia was talked about after they lost the ACC championship game to Clemson as, you know, sort of the illegitimate team that sneaked into the New Year's Six because of that automatic ACC bid in the Orange Bowl. And 
I think they took all that criticism to heart because they showed up in Miami and, uh, while Florida walked away victors, they only won by eight points. And if not for missing an onside kick in the final minute, we very well could have seen overtime in this game. So I, I, I came away from it really impressed with what Bronco Mendenhall did with the Cavaliers this season. Um, and at the same time, impressed with Dan Mullen. So, yeah, yeah I, I think both teams can hang their heads high. What did, what did you think, John? My biggest takeaway from the Orange Bowl is that I'm going to miss Bryce Perkins playing football in college. You know, getting one last opportunity to see him. What a program-changing talent he's been in Charlottesville um, for the Cavaliers. As much as Bronco Mendenhall's done, I mean, it's been Perkins that's kind of been the face of the program change, right? He's been the guy who's kind of led the resurgence of Virginia football. And he had a great game against Florida. He really put Virginia on his back. You could tell that Virginia took it personally, that they were given no shot. They were two-touchdown underdog. No one thought they deserved to be in Miami in the Orange Bowl. And really it was Perkins who kind of rallied the troops and did everything he could to almost pull the upset for Virginia. He had 323 yards and four touchdowns passing against a really good Florida defense. The only thing he couldn't really do was find running lanes. It was pretty clear that Florida had decided before the game that the only way Perkins was going to beat them was with his arm. They weren't going to let him do it um, on the ground like he's so capable of doing. But he showed that he's certainly more than a capable passer, and he had a brilliant game. Um Virginia, I really did think, acquitted themselves very nicely in that game. Florida also, I mean, they did what they should have done, you know, coming out with a victory. Uh, LaMichael Pirine, I think, has been one of the more underrated running backs in the country for several years. Uh, I think that's actually going to be a pretty significant loss for the Gators next season that really isn't being played up enough. Uh, he only had 13 carries, but he managed 138 yards and a pair of touchdowns. Also caught five passes for 43 yards and another touchdown. So he was really the bell cow for Florida's offense in that game. And I thought he was brilliant. So really a, definitely an entertaining game. One of the games that I was least looking forward to in the New Year's Six. Uh, but but certainly a game that turned out to be to be really good. Yeah, I, I drew the stick to, to write the recap at Saturday Blitz for that game. And when I did it... Uh... It seemed like it might be a, a disappointing one or a really easy one to write because it might be out of the way by halftime. But it went down to the wire, and it uh, it was a good one to stay up for on the East Coast. Um, you know, I one thing I do want to just kind of mention, because with all the Bryce Perkins love, he's the only quarterback who threw for 300-plus against Florida's secondary this year. I mean, not even the Heisman winner, Joe Burrow, could do that. And and as we talked about in the previous segment, Burrow can carve up a defense. So I, I think that really just speaks to how good Bryce Perkins was. And as you said, uh, what a loss he's going to be for college football. But let's... Uh, Let's shift gears before we go to our second break and look at the games that are coming up later on New Year's Day. Uh, first of all, we've got the Rose Bowl. Uh, they're in Pasadena between the Oregon Ducks and the Wisconsin Badgers. And uh, as you know, John, this, this game's killing me. I, I actually wrote about it in my Sunday morning quarterback column this past week. Uh, wrapping up 2019 with a little different take in the column than I normally do. Uh, just looking at how much a game like this kills me as a fan with split loyalties. Um, so I actually want to hear your take on this because I obviously have some, some biased opinions coming from both directions. What do you think might happen in the Rose Bowl? Yeah, and if, Everyone, if you haven't read the, the column that Zach wrote for that, I highly recommend it. Very, very good. Very kind of different Sunday morning quarterback than he usually dives into. So I was very excited to read that. So I definitely recommend it. I think this is going to be a great game. I think it's going to be agonizing for you because you're not going to have that early acceptance like, okay, one of these teams is significantly better than the other. That's good to know. Let's move on. 
I can start accepting the fact that one of them's getting blown out while the other one is having their moment. I think it's going to be a nail biter that comes down to the absolute wire. So I, I know that's probably worst case scenario for you because that'll be, you're not really sure whether to be excited or upset or nervous or whatever throughout the entire day. So I expect a really good game. I, I think you've got two teams that are kind of similar in that they have really dominant running games and they prefer to do their damage on offense on the ground. You've got a couple defenses that are really, really good um, as well. But I I think it comes down to, to, to the end. But I actually like Wisconsin to, to pull the, I guess, mini upset. Well, not upset, actually. Wisconsin's favorite. That's actually surprising. Uh, just looking at the line now. I actually like Wisconsin to come out on top. I think this will be... Uh, a big game for Jonathan Taylor and what could be his final uh, bow as a Wisconsin running back before moving on to the NFL. I think he'll have a big game. I think Jack Cohn will manage the game well and make a couple plays. And I ultimately think the Badgers come out on top. And, and, and what I really expect to be a pretty classic Rose Bowl, Wisconsin's favored by a field goal. And that feels about right to me. Yeah, I I, I, I think this could go either way. I really do. And so you're absolutely right. It's going to be one of those things where every beautiful play for one team is going to immediately have me thinking about how that impacts the other team. And, uh, you know, no matter what happens in Pasadena uh, later today, we're going to see, uh, I you know, I'm going to be celebrating a victory and mourning a loss at the same time. So obviously an odd feeling, but... I, I'm with you. I think Jonathan Taylor could have a huge game. Uh, something's got to give because Oregon ranks 11th in the country in rush defense, allowing only, I think it's like 106.8 yards per game. And Taylor's averaging 38 more yards per game by himself. So something's got to give. And then, um, you know, we saw earlier this year with Wisconsin that they're susceptible to the long ball. That's how Illinois was able to pull off the upset against them. Um, we saw Tanner Morgan be able to hit over the top on them a couple of times uh, in the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe. Um, Ohio State was obviously able to make some some plays through the air in both of their wins over the Badgers. So I think it really comes down to what Justin Herbert we get in his final college game because... You know, this is his chance as a, a, a Eugene native to finally imprint his name on Oregon's Rose Bowl history. It's his chance to, you know, really position himself well for scouts coming into the NFL draft. And part of that's going to be showing off the long ball and his accuracy there. And if he's able to hit his receivers in stride and, you know, get three, four touchdown passes... Um, which is entirely possible against Wisconsin's secondary if you've got your quarterback on fire and accurate. Um, Oregon could have a huge day. I, I, I personally think, you know, he does have a good day against that Wisconsin secondary. He's got the motivation. And uh, I, I see Oregon walking away 31-27, something like that going just beyond the the over-under of, I think it's 55 right now, and, uh, you know, pulling off the quote-unquote upset, as you said, because this is one where the line looks like it, you know, it, it will come down to the wire, and it's going to be close either way. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a pick on I think I think the only disappointing thing would be if we don't get the classic close Rose Bowl that we're kind of all hoping for, maybe other than you, but I, I certainly expect uh, it to be one of the better games of the bowl season. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, I think we've picked over that one enough. I'm just going to, uh, to take, to bid my adieu on that one until we talk about it next week in retrospect. Um, so let's, let's look at the last new year's six bowl before we take our break. Uh, the Sugar Bowl is happening uh, later this evening between uh, Georgia and Baylor. And, you know, there's a couple of really interesting storylines in this one. Georgia watched 
what Oklahoma was able to do to LSU. And I'm sure on one level they were sort of nursing their wounds and wondering what it would have looked like to get another shot at the Tigers. And uh, on the other hand, this who knows, this might be Matt Rule's last hurrah in Waco before he runs off to the NFL. We've heard some rumors about NFL coaching gigs for the, the Baylor headman, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But, you know, this game on the field really comes down to uh, defense, I think. You know, these are two of the top 20 defenses in the country. Georgia's better at just all-out stuffing opponents. Uh, Baylor is uh, even better at hawking the ball and, and getting takeaways. So um, contrasting but really strong styles of defense, and I'm really curious to see which one of them wins out in what I think, honestly, is going to be a pretty low-scoring Sugar Bowl. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Defenses will probably rule the day um, in New Orleans. Uh, I think what's really interesting is all the rumors about Georgia being down quite a few players for this game, whether it be internal suspensions or players sitting out to preserve NFL draft stock. We already know that two starting offensive linemen, Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson, will both be um, out after declaring early for the NFL draft. Also, Ben Cleveland, a third starting offensive lineman, is going to miss the game for academic reasons. So that's three starting offensive linemen down for Georgia against a really ferocious um, Baylor defensive front. So that could be really problematic for Jake Fromm. Um, Brian, there's been some murmurs about Brian Harrion uh, also not playing in this game. No one really knows exactly the reason for that. We don't know if DeAndre Swift will be out there either. Um, and there's there's several others that are up in the air for Georgia, and that's that's worrisome, especially for a Georgia offense that struggled against the better defenses it's faced this season, as many players as it could be without in this game. So I think it could be a long day for Jake Fromm. You're down three offensive linemen. You might not have the safety net of having DeAndre Swift behind you or even Brian Harrion, who's Georgia's second-leading rusher. So you could be down to your number three running back several backup offensive linemen. Then Georgia hasn't had the talent at receiver that they've had in recent years um, to really make up for that. So I think it's going to be a long day for Fromm. I kind of see this game functioning pretty similarly to last year's Sugar Bowl where Texas kind of stunned the country by punching Georgia in the mouth early in that game and, you know, winning in the trenches. I think we'll see something similar this year. Georgia, Kirby Smart's talked a good game about having the – uh, right motivation, but when you're down as many players as Georgia might be in this game, I think that's a huge factor. Baylor's not going to have that problem. They're going to be hungry to come out to score that big win, and I think Baylor gets the victory. Uh, this spread's been slowly dropping all uh, for the last couple of weeks. It's now down to just Georgia favored by four points, so we're getting tighter. I do think, like you said, it'll be a real defensive game, but I, I see um, Baylor coming out with like a 21-17 win, something like that. I have 2017 written down, so I think we're pretty much in alignment on that game. I think it's going to be one where you definitely hit the under on it. Uh, the line, the total points line is set at 41 and a half, and I definitely think it comes under that. So we're actually in agreement on that one. So we're we're split with the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. So... Take that for what you will, all of you who have followed this season uh, for our picks against the spread. Um, and chew on that as we take our second break. When we come back, we'll be talking about our best wins, our worst losses, the biggest surprises, and our game balls uh, for all the games uh, outside the New Year's Six. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking mostly about the New Year's Six games, starting with the college football playoff semifinals and moving on to the non-playoff New Year's Six games in our second segment. Now it's time for some of the lesser heralded bowls that happen around college football. You know, we have basically 40 bowl games on the schedule every year at this point when we include uh, the Celebration Bowl for historic black colleges and universities. And uh, 
you know, we hear, we've heard grumbling throughout history about how many bowl games there are and how many bowl games there should actually be. But I'll be honest, uh, I love sitting here and getting to watch football for the next three weeks and getting my dose for the next eight months. So, um, on that note, there's been some great games. What did you think was the best win outside the New Year's Six so far, John? I was super impressed with North Carolina's blowout win over Temple in the Military Bowl. Uh, I don't think anyone expected the Tar Heels to have that easy of a time against the Owls. I I expected that to be a pretty close game. I thought North Carolina would win, but I thought it would be you know probably a one score game. But the Tar Heels just came out and hammered Temple, fifty five to thirteen. Uh, Sam Howell finished off a, a really brilliant freshman season. I think he's got fans in Chapel Hill uh, really excited for the future there. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing North Carolina. This is the, this was the type of win, Zach, that's going to get North Carolina a lot of preseason hype for 2020. Oh, yeah. To me. Like, this is the type of win. They, they had the kind of season. They came close in some games. Like, they, you know, played Clemson down to the wire. They had a lot of close losses. But this could have easily been a 9 or 10 win team this season. So this is the – got to figure that there's going to be a lot of – I think there's going to be significant <laughs> preseason hype for North Carolina next year to make a run in the ACC. Um, and probably for good reason. And Sam Howell, I think, is a big reason why. You know, he was just terrific as a true freshman. I think that was one probably – you could argue that was the most significant flip of the recruiting season was Matt Brown getting him to flip from Florida State to come to North Carolina. Um, and he finishes his freshman season with 3,600 passing yards, completing 61% of his throws for 38 touchdowns and seven picks. I mean, that's incredible numbers. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great season for a senior quarterback. You know that, And this guy is a freshman, 18-year-old kid playing college football for the first time. So it was hard not to be impressed with him. So uh, overall, I was very impressed with North Carolina. um, And I had to eat some crow. Uh, I had a lot of North Carolina fans in my mentions after that game, um, calling back to an article I wrote at Saturday Blitz uh, about how hiring Matt Brown as a retreat was a bad move and stuff like that. It certainly looks like that's been incorrect so far as Brown's really got um, a lot of energy back in that fan base, and they're very excited, and they certainly exceeded expectations in year one. Um, we'll see what happens in the future still, but uh, definitely had to eat a little crow, and that and that's okay. You know, um, shout out to, to all those passionate North Carolina fans who were very excited to tell me how wrong I was. Uh, I understand. You know, I remember looking back when he was hired at uh, the Grover Cleveland All-Stars, those guys who came back and coached at the same school. And honestly, the history of it working out is definitely is smaller than the history of it not working out for a school. So hats off to, to all the folks in Chapel Hill for it working out. That was definitely a game that was on my short list of the best wins of the the postseason and I I'm with you I think they definitely get a huge bull bump um as I'm sitting here trying to rack my brain and finish up the way too early top 25 projections for the 2020 season um you know another game that stuck out to me and I think is going to help out a team in next year's preseason rankings is the way Iowa dismantled USC in the holiday bowl um, this, you know, the Trojans came into the game as a one point favorite. So I think this was definitely a game that most folks saw could go one way or the other. Um, but I don't think anybody saw Kirk Ferentz's team coming out and doing what they did to the Trojans. Uh, you know, Amir Smith-Marset had the ridiculous second quarter where he racked up three touchdowns, three different ways, getting that six yard touchdown run, the what was it, a 98-yard kick return, and then also catching a pass for a touchdown. Um, you know, the fact is, the Hawkeyes, they, they, they crushed it at the point of attack. USC came away with only 22 total rushing yards as a team on 18 carries. Averaged just barely more than a yard a carry, and that's, that's never going to serve you well in any game, much less a bowl game. 
Um, so, you know, I think this, you know, the, the Iowa did exactly what they needed to do and turn the Trojans one-dimensional. And Keaton Slovis and Matt Fink could not get it done passing the ball against the Hawkeyes. They really did a great job of forcing them to be in complete passing situations all the time, and then they played well for it. And, you know, the win gave Kirk Ferentz his sixth 10-win season there in Iowa City since he took over the Hawkeyes in 99. And hats off to a huge season for them. I You know, I... I, we saw it in the preseason, Iowa definitely had a chance to do something interesting, but I, I, I don't think anybody saw the way the season played out, them having such an explosion in their final game of the year. Yeah, and I think the onus is on Clay Helton now to, to make a similar job-saving hire on the defensive side of the ball that he did on the offensive side this year. You know, I think... Hiring Graham Harrell was obviously a, a really good move, and USC's offense really hummed all year. But they've got to figure it out on the defensive side of the ball if he wants to maintain his post in L.A. past the 2020 season. Um, so I think that'll be one of the interesting assistant coaching hires that happens in the next few weeks is what the Trojans do at defensive coordinator for next season. Because, you know, I didn't know personally, Zach, that Iowa was allowed to score 49 points in the game. That's like... That's like a month's worth of points for the Hawkeyes. So um, definitely impressed with Iowa, but definitely showed how far USC still has to come to get back in the serious contention. Certainly. And we've seen that, you know, in a lot of games with the Big Ten this year where we didn't expect to see a lot of points scored, you know. Uh, Obviously, Penn State scoring 53 on Memphis isn't that surprising, but you had Michigan State coming out and scoring touchdowns? What what was that about? Um, You know, these sorts of games are always um, really hit or miss in how they play out according to form of the regular season. I think that's one part of what that game really shows us more than anything. Um, Moving on, what do you see as the worst... New Year, non-New Year's Six loss that's happened so far this bowl season? You know, I was really disappointed with Iowa State's performance in the Camping World Bowl against Notre Dame. That was a game that both of us kind of thought Iowa State really had a shot to potentially pull the upset there, and they just came out flat and uninspired in a game that you would have thought they would have been really excited to play when you get a shot at playing a blue blood like Notre Dame in a bowl game, and they just didn't look anything like the team that I really thought they'd be. And really that speaks to the whole season for the Cyclones because I really thought this Iowa State team uh, had a shot to, to get to a Big 12 championship game this year. And they had a lot of close losses, but I think it's extremely disappointing that they finished 7-6 and six on the season. I think they were too talented of a team to, to only win seven games. And I, it's cooled to Matt Campbell's stock. You know, last season he was one of the hottest names in the coaching carousel. You're not really hearing that kind of hype this year because it was kind of a disappointing season in Ames, and it really finished uh, even more so with a with a 33 to nine loss to the to the Fighting Irish. This game wasn't really close from the beginning. Notre Dame outclassed Iowa State on both lines of scrimmage. Um, Ian Book had a really strong game. Uh, Brock Purdy wasn't bad. He took care of the football, but he couldn't. He still couldn't really get Iowa State um, into the end zone the entire game. They only managed three field goals. So. I was disappointed at Iowa State. I thought if not an outright victory over Notre Dame, I thought that this would be one of the more competitive games of the bowl season. Yeah, we were really high on the Cyclones, both of us, in the preseason. And it's been a really, you know, unfortunate season for them. Uh, You know, it's not even that they played poorly this year. They lost a fair number of close games that could have turned the other way. And this was not one of them. This was definitely not one of them. So I, I'm with you. I did not see that coming uh, at when it happened. Another one I, you know, really was not expecting at all was one that we called the opposite direction as well. And that was Boise State losing to Washington, especially the way they did 38 to 7 in the Las Vegas Bowl. 
we thought that, you know, Boise State would come into this game and Brian Harson would have them ready to play the former Broncos coach in Chris Peterson's final game on the Huskies sideline. They weren't ready. You know, this was Boise State's chance to show that they got passed over wrongly for an, the New Year's Six bull berth for the group of five. They certainly didn't show that. Uh, they, you know, they... We saw Hank Bachmeyer throw two interceptions that Washington turned into 14 points and really just sort of flipped the narrative right away. And we saw John Hightower fumble the ball late and allowed Washington to basically run out the rest of the clock at the end of the game. So turnovers were really terrible because Boise State's defense didn't play poorly. You know, they held Washington to 341 yards total offense. And um, the problem is, is Boise State gave them short fields with bad punting situations. They gave them short fields with bad turnover situations. And basically, Boise State shot themselves in the foot in the way Washington didn't. And, you know, the Huskies had only one penalty the entire game. So Chris Peterson had them motivated and ready to send him out on top. And Boise State just wasn't wasn't ready for this. The way that Washington came to the last game at Sam Boyd Stadium. Yeah, I, I think it also speaks to how how different the season could have gone for Washington. I think they proved that they were a really good team. And, you know, some things went against them and they didn't perform particularly well in some bigger games. So I, I think if you're a Washington fan, it's kind of got to be frustrating to see that kind of performance in the bowl game and think back at, you know, where was this all season long? Because that was, to me, clearly the best game the Huskies played all season long. They were clicking on all cylinders on both sides of the ball. So uh, certainly a changing of the guard coming with Jimmy Lake taking over. He'll have to replace uh, Jacob Eason, who's declared for the draft. So interesting times in Seattle, uh, but certainly a, a promising end to the season. Yeah, a great, great end for Washington and uh, definitely helps out perceptions about the Pac-12 as well after a year where they were much maligned for uh, a big batch of parody uh, disguised as mediocrity. Moving on, biggest surprise, John. We We definitely saw some surprising results over the bowl season as we always do. And we'll certainly probably see a couple more surprises in this last week as we wrap up the final games of the year. But so far, what's been the biggest surprise for you? To me, it was Florida Atlantic's blowout victory over SMU in the Boca Raton Bowl. Um, Florida Atlantic had every reason to not be fired up for this bowl game, even playing in front of their home crowd. Lane Kiffin had already departed for Oxford, so they were down their head coach. Um, Harrison Bryant didn't play their All-American tight end. They were down three other offensive or three other starters uh, due to academic suspension. So they had every reason to kind of just go through the motions in this bowl game. And they were playing an SMU team that's had one of their best seasons in several decades uh, from a really good American Athletic Conference that we talked about all season being a really deep league. I really expected SMU to win this game, even with it being a pseudo-road game. But the Owls just came out and clicked on all cylinders. Uh, Chris Robinson was brilliant passing, had over 300 yards and a couple of touchdowns. Uh, SMU's defense has been questionable all season long, but I, I did not expect this. I did not expect this to be a blowout. I think, you know, the American top to bottom was way better than the Conference USA all year, but Florida Atlantic, I think, showed that they were more than Lane Kiffin yeah. in this game. You know, they came out. They played all well together and just absolutely dominated the Mustangs. And I think that's got to have fans in Boca excited about the future under Willie Taggart and what this program still has a chance to be, even after losing Kiffin to Ole Miss. So I was very surprised that the result wouldn't have been outright shocked to see Florida Atlantic win this game. But the fact that they won it by 24, I think, was the biggest surprise to me of the bowl season. Yeah, uh, the fact that they hung half a century and SMU could not keep up with them at the same time was huge. I honestly, the biggest surprise for me was a game that went in the opposite direction that had very little scoring. Uh, Specifically the shutout we saw uh, by the Miami Hurricanes 
uh, in the Independence Bowl against Louisiana Tech. Um, the Bulldogs are a decent team. Let's, you know, let's give credit where credit is due. But at the same time, uh, you know, coming into this game, before it even started, Dan Enos was rumored to be on his way out. And, you know, he coached like a, ma a dead man walking. That Hurricanes team was completely uninspired when they had the football um, from beginning to, to bitter end. And the the fact you know the fact that Miami was shut out in their first bowl game since the nineteen ninety four Fiesta Bowl, and the fact that as you said about Conference USA, the fact that this happened against the third best team in Conference USA, this wasn't like a Florida Atlantic doing it, you know the conference champ. This was the third best team in Conference USA doing it, and they performed. What's funny about it is that Louisiana Tech, it's not like they performed like mind-blowingly on offense. Jamar Smith was good, but he wasn't great. He completed fewer than 50% of his passes, only had 163 yards through the air, um, one touchdown and one interception. Um, you know, he ran 10 times for 34 yards, had a touchdown on the ground, but again, far less than we've seen Smith be able to do with the football, both with his arm and his legs. So, you know, the defense came out all right for the Hurricanes, but that offense, it, 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 it reeked. It was absolutely abysmal there in Shreveport. You know, um, for, for rattling off Smith's stats and how, you know, run-of-the-mill they were, Jaron Williams and Nikosi Perry combined to go 14 of 33 for only 146 yards with no touchdowns and two interceptions. So, and they only, you know, they ran the ball nine times combined for 33 yards. So together they couldn't put up the stat line that Jamar Smith did. And he didn't put up an impressive stat line. That was what really surprised me is just how, you know, you talked about the opportunity for a team to lay down and Miami had every oppor you know, they had every reason to just kind of lay down and just give up for a coach that obviously didn't know how to use the pieces and parts he had there in Coral Gables. And they did exactly that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about maybe the most embarrassing performance of bowl season. It was Miami offensive performance in the bowl game has any coach by the way any assistant coach made a worse move in recent years than Dan Enos leaving the potential of being Alabama's offensive coordinator to go to Miami as the offensive coordinator I mean Enos was on a path that he probably could have been an FBS head coach in the next couple of years if he had stayed in Tuscaloosa and then decided to leave um, really in the middle of the night to take the Miami OC job and now you know He's on the unemployment line after a disappointing, not just bowl game, but a disappointing season where the Hurricanes really couldn't muster much offense at all. No, there's a reason that he was being talked about is out the door after the bowl game ended and why you, you, know, you looked at Twitter and a lot of Hurricanes fans were really excited about that proposition. And, um, you know, I wrote about this game that it was basically one game too late to send him out the door, at least one game too late. I, I think Miami might have turned out better if they just had one of their position coaches taking the charge for for this bowl game. But yeah, huge surprise. Let's uh before we wrap up this week's podcast, uh, as we always like to do, let's look at some let's highlight some individual performances that happened over the you know the first couple weeks of this bowl season since we last got the opportunity to chat. Start with offense. Who gets your offensive game ball, John? Uh, Joe Burrow. <laughs> um, I there's not a whole lot more to say other than the fact that he had one of the greatest performances in a bowl game in the history of college football. Um, you know, he tied the record for any college bowl game with seven touchdown passes, and he did it all in the first half. So imagine if he had come out and LSU had continued throwing and trying to rack up the stats. He could have thrown 10 or 11 touchdown passes in that game. LSU probably could have scored 80 points had they really wanted to against Oklahoma. So Joe Burrow, the Heisman Trophy winner, the runaway Heisman Trophy winner, 
You talked about Jalen Hurts being runner-up. We talked about the difference between one, two, and three in college football this year and everybody else. But I think Burrow's performance uh, versus Hurts' performance also showed the gap between Burrow and the rest of college football in the Heisman Trophy race this year. So eight total touchdowns in the game, seven passing. Um, in a college football playoff semifinal, it's just absurd. It's an absurd stat line regardless of what was on the line. But with everything that was on the line in that game for Burrow to show up like that, um, I was just incredibly impressed. I mean, he's been the best player in college football all season long, setting up maybe the best quarterback versus quarterback matchup in playoff history or even maybe national championship history when you've got the potential for the number one pick in the 2020 draft and the number one pick in the 2021 draft going head-to-head. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be really exciting to see Burrow versus Lawrence. Completely agree. And, uh, you know, if you hadn't handed a game ball to him, I probably would have had to uh, because Burrow was just that good that he, you know, we can crow his name as much as we want. It's still not enough to 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 really highlight how good he was there at the Peach Bowl. For me, I turned to a quarterback that we actually talked about at the very beginning of the season uh, in his performance against Arizona, and uh, it turned full circle for Cole McDonald, the Hawaii quarterback, this uh, this postseason as he led the Rainbow Warriors to a 38-34 victory over BYU on his home turf there at Aloha Stadium uh, in the Hawaii Bowl, obviously, on Christmas Eve. It's been an up-and-down year for McDonald. He split time with Siobhan Cordero, uh, you know, but Hawaii ended up still turning things around to the point where they made it to the Mountain West Championship game, beat out San Diego State for that spot in the championship game with a really ugly 14-11 victory against the Aztecs. Um, You know, weren't able to beat Boise State either of the times that they played them. But, you know, this is a team that started the year 2-1 and against the Pac-12. So, obviously, Hawaii had some chops coming into this game. And... You know, in his final game as a Rainbow Warrior, McDonald had a really strong finish. He went 28 of 46 for 493 yards and four touchdowns, no interceptions. The kind of game we expected from him all year long, you know. Um, He finally was able to pull that out one last time at the end. And uh, he also had a rushing score for good measure uh, to account for all five of Hawaii's touchdowns in that victory. So, um, you know, he finished with his best pass efficiency rating since that 54-3 blowout of Nevada back in late September. And this was, an, you know, an even better performance all around, I think. So... With that, I, I have to give a shout-out one last time to a really great group of five quarterback who, who really earned it this postseason. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite players in college football this year, one of my favorite teams to watch in college football this year was Hawaii, who finished 10-5, and five, by the way, which I think gives them the NFC East title over the Eagles, but, you know, whatever. Something like that, yeah, exactly. Um, moving on, um, on defense, what who who gets the defensive game ball, John? Uh, for me, I was really, you know, I already talked about the Notre Dame-Iowa State game, but the guy who just kept showing out in that game and really turning it into the blow, and it was uh, with the Irish's defense dominating, was Jeremiah Owusu, who had, uh, he had nine tackles, seven of which were solo, three sacks, four tackles for loss, and a forced fumble in the game. He was an absolute nightmare for the Iowa State offense, consistently living in the backfield, consistently making plays behind the line of scrimmage. Um, So he was absolutely dominant. There's several guys on Notre Dame's defense that deserve really recognition for just completely swallowing up an Iowa State offense that we've seen has the ability to rack up a lot of points. So Owusu was incredible in that game, so he gets my defensive game ball. That's a really great pick. Um, I'm going to actually go to a game that you talked about a little bit earlier uh, when we looked at best wins. North Carolina um, obviously had a hell of a game in that 55-13 win over Temple. And while a lot of credit has to be given to Sam Howell in the offense, I think at the same time we'd be remiss not to talk about 
the way the defense played. And for me, no player stood out more than uh, defensive back Storm Duck. Great name, first of all. As an Oregon alum, I'm always going to love somebody with the last name Duck. That's great. But he earned his game ball this week, not just because of a classy name. Um, he was a key part of a Tar Heels secondary that held Anthony Russo and Todd Santeo to a combined 18 of 32 for 194 passing yards um, with only one touchdown and two picks. Um, Duck obviously had one of those two picks. He picked, he, he picked, he got the interception off of Russo, um, returned it 20 yards for a pick six and, uh, you know, really started getting the ball get rolling down the mountain for this avalanche of points. Um, he had five total tackles. Four of them were solo. Two of them were behind the line of scrimmage. Um, so he was not only good on the back end on passing downs, but he was also doing a great job of pushing up and getting involved in the run game. Um, he had a quarterback hurry when he went in to, to pressure on passing downs. Um, and just all around, he was all over the field and put in a hell of a performance in that victory. Yeah, it's kind of a shame he didn't end up in Eugene. I don't really know how that happens. He should have been an Oregon top. Yeah, I, I don't know where they fell, fell down on the job on the recruiting trail, but so life goes sometimes. Because, yeah, that'd be great to see on the back of an Oregon jersey, just duck. <laughs> yeah, if there was a thing as, you know, lightness in college football, he could have sold so many Oregon jerseys with that on it. I know, I know. Well, on that note, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Um, I hope you all uh, had a wonderful and safe New Year's Eve and that you enjoy the last two New Year's Six games on the schedule as well as the rest of the bowl games that will be happening through the weekend and into next Monday. Um, we'll be back next Wednesday, as usual, to talk with you about the rest of the postseason, wrap everything up, and look ahead to the college football playoff national championship game between the pair of Tigers, Clemson and LSU. Thanks for tuning in. It's been great being here with you. Have a good week.